0: Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be looking at Romans chapter 9, verse 29, through Romans 10, verse 4. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. are continuing our journey through the book of Romans. Today we find ourselves right at the end of chapter 9 leading into chapter 10 so you can turn to Romans chapter 9 verse 30 in your Bibles. By way of review we're in the midst of a section of Romans where Paul is addressing various aspects concerning the children of Israel in the Christian era. This section of the book goes from chapter 9 through chapter 11. If you were a Christian Jew at the time, you would naturally wonder, hey, why aren't more percentage of God's chosen people accepting Christ as their Messiah? What's up with that? Those would be natural questions to ask from a Christian Jew of the time. Paul's answer, in a nutshell, is that this is all part of God's sovereign plan and purpose. Paul discussed God's sovereignty in all things quite a bit in chapter 9, and so we discussed it also quite a bit. In this section, Paul veers a bit to focus specifically on the responsibility of the Jews for their own situation. And we've talked about how, in the Bible, these two topics are often juxtaposed or placed next to each other. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. They're placed side by side in the Bible so that we should know that from a biblical point of view, the two concepts are compatible with each other, even though, at least in my case, the two subjects are difficult to reconcile. The way I make peace with this is that I just admit that I'm not intelligent enough to understand how things work from God's point of view. And so I focus on how things operate from a human point of view with an acknowledgement that by faith, indeed, God is sovereign and everything is under His control. But yet, this does not relieve me from the responsibility to make the right choices within the confines of my own free will. And indeed, I am responsible for the choices that I make. I will be held accountable for the choices that I make. And this is the case for everyone. So, indeed, It's also the case for the Jews living at the time of Paul, and also living now for that matter. Because actually, what we discuss today also applies, for the most part, to modern Jews. Paul is summarizing, beginning in our passage today and going through chapter 10, Paul is summarizing the reasons from a human point of view as to why so many Jews reject Christ. So that's what we'll discuss as we study today's passage. So let's read today's passage. We'll be reading Romans chapter 9, verse 30 through Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Quote What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes." Paul here gives us the reasons that many children of Israel have not been saved and will not, going forward, be saved. Or in other words, the reason why only a remnant of the children of Israel will be saved. And Paul says it in terms that we can understand. They have rejected Christ and have rejected the terms of the new covenant. They have continued to pursue favor with God through the law and have rejected obtaining righteousness in God's eyes under God's terms as instituted by their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Justification by the grace of God through faith in Christ. Again, let's read verses 31 and 32, quote, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not obtained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, unquote. So as I said, rather than accepting the terms of salvation under the new covenant, most of the children of Israel chose to continue the ways of the old covenant and pursue righteousness as Paul says, as if it were by works. So the question is, why would the children of Israel do this? Why would they reject the terms of the new covenant, justification by faith in Christ? Why would they cling to the old ways of pursuing righteousness through works? Was it just a lack of faith that Jesus truly is the Messiah? To that we could answer, what more could Christ have done? He came to earth. He performed all manner of signs and wonders, healing all those who even touched his robes in faith. He demonstrated power over sickness, over natural phenomena, calming the sea, ceasing storms, walking on water, feeding the thousands. He demonstrated power over death, not only by raising Lazarus, but also by being raised from the dead himself. And then beyond that, the teachings and actions of Jesus were pure, simple, and full of grace and humility? Was it a matter of pride among the children of Israel? Was it that they didn't want to accept a salvation that was dependent completely on Christ and and not on their own works? Or, most likely, I think, Jesus just did not fit their view of what they expected in a Messiah, or more specifically, the salvation he brought was not the salvation that they were expecting. They they wanted a Messiah who would destroy Rome, not one who destroyed the power of sin. And I might hazard to guess, they certainly didn't want a Messiah who destroyed the power of sin in the way that Christ did, by dying on a cross. This is the most likely reason. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Here's what he said. Quote, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Unquote. It's a beautifully written verse. Um And Paul there refers to Christ as the stumbling block, just as here in Romans he refers to Christ as the stumbling stone. Let's read verses, you know, the end of 32 uh, and verse 33 again. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame, unquote. Peter agrees with Paul and also speaks of Christ as a stumbling stone, as being part of God's plan and purpose. Here's what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8, quote, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Christ as the stumbling stone, as Peter says, what they were destined for. Both Peter and Paul were referencing some verses in the book of Isaiah. And by the way, the ancient Jewish scholars who wrote the Talmud also viewed these verses in Isaiah as referring to the Messiah, just like Peter and Paul do. Let's look at those verses. I think they're quite amazing. In verse 33, back in Romans chapter 8, Paul combines two different passages from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 14 and Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16. Let's look at the verses surrounding Isaiah chapter 8 verse 14 real quickly. I'm going to read Isaiah 8 verses 14 through 17, quote, He will be a holy place, For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in Him. Unquote. Again, not only Paul and Peter, but also the ancient Jewish scholars interpreted this passage as referring to the Messiah. So the consensus is that this passage depicts the Messiah as being a stumbling stone. I find also interesting here uh, in verse 16, leading into verse 17, back in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 8. It says. "...seal up God's instructions among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob." That last part reflects what Paul is saying in chapters 9-11 through of Romans, that it's part of God's plan and purpose that initially the children of Israel reject the Messiah, as it says that the Lord is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob." And the way this is done is hinted at, I think, in verse 16, where it says, Seal up God's instructions among my disciples. To me, that seems like the eyes of the children of Israel will be blind to the gospel message. What can this be referring to but the gospel? God's instruction among my disciples. That is such a Christian-sounding phrase, actually, referring to to the Messiah's disciples and it's really a, an amazing prophecy because in the Christian religion discipleship is so important christianity of course was spread through first Christ teaching his disciples and then those disciples preaching and teaching and making more disciples and then they those disciples would preach and teach and, and it went on and on Judaism, on the other hand, grew through the family tree, basically. And except for the small number of converts to Judaism, all Jews were descendants of Jacob, as it refers to in verse uh, 17, of Isaiah. say. Given that, there's a huge difference between the way that God's word was spread under the Old Covenant versus under the New Covenant. And of course, under the Old Covenant, his word was available to far fewer people. The Jews, by and large, kept it for themselves. In the New Covenant, God's plan was that the gospel be made available to absolutely everyone all nations, all peoples, all races, everyone on earth. And to do that, God's word was taken out of the hands of the descendants of Jacob, and his instruction was put into the hands of the disciples of the Messiah, as Isaiah refers to uh, in verse 16 there. So then, Paul, back here in Romans, cites those verses from Isaiah to show that what he's talking about here in Romans 9-11 through is all part of God's plan and purpose, going way back even to the times of Isaiah. Even way back then, God foresaw that the Jews, in and of themselves, could not be solely entrusted to spread the gospel of the new covenant throughout the world and the wisdom of God's foreknowledge of this was proven through what happened in the early preaching of the gospel. During the times when Paul was preaching the gospel to the non-Jews as the apostle to the Gentiles, the Christian church in Jerusalem was the most influential Christian church in the world. James, Jesus's brother, was the leader of that church, and Peter hung out there a lot when he wasn't on the road. At that time, There were many traveling missionaries from the church in Jerusalem who were saying that a man had to be circumcised and that true Christians had to follow the dietary laws, etc., of the Jewish religion in order to be a true Christian. In other words, they were trying, really, to make the Christian religion to be a sect of Judaism. They were trying to put new wine in old wineskins, as Jesus prophesied. But that's not the way that Christianity was meant to be. And that's not the way that God wanted things to be. This was the new covenant. And the new covenant was not an annex of the old covenant. The new covenant is a different beast. And Paul was constantly battling against this. Nearly all of Paul's epistles mention, either directly or indirectly, the controversy about the so-called Judaizers the ostensibly Christian missionaries who taught that someone had to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. And it got to a point where Paul had had enough and went with Barnabas to the church in Jerusalem to kind of have it out with the leadership there and to decide this issue once and for all because it was really interfering with Paul's preaching to the Gentiles and it was hindering the spread of Christianity among the Gentiles this meeting often referred to as the council in jerusalem is described in acts chapter 15 and also in the book of galatians let's look at a few verses from acts 15. Uh, i'll be reading acts 15 verses 1 and 2 quote certain people came down from judea to antioch and were teaching the believers unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by moses you cannot be saved This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question." So Paul and Barnabas kind of had it out, as I said, and things got a bit heated. And in the end, they all came up with a compromise of sorts. And James, the leader of the church at Jerusalem, wrote a letter to all the churches saying that men did not have to be circumcised. But they were to follow some of the dietary laws, such as abstaining from food sacrificed to idols and, and the meat of strangled animals. And they were also to stay away from sexual immorality, which of course makes sense. And then they all agreed that Paul was designated as THE Apostle to the Gentiles. Because they saw that God was working as powerfully through Paul to the Gentiles as God was working through Peter to the Jews. And so everyone parted ways somewhat amicably. Even after that, there still remained problems though. Peter visited the church in Antioch, which was another large major church in Christendom at the time. And Paul got in a big argument with Peter because once some brothers from the church at Jerusalem visited, Peter refused to eat with the gentiles and kind of scaled back his fellowship with them. And this infuriated Paul because it sent a bad message. And and Paul publicly called Peter out on it. From these episodes, uh, by the way, you can find that in, in the book of Galatians, uh, Paul talks about that. Anyway, from these episodes, you can see that the church in Jerusalem, as I said, was somewhat powerful in the very early history of the Christian church. In fact, James, the bishop in Jerusalem, was almost looked on as a pope of sorts he had a lot of power and authority over the christian churches given this in the very early history of the church there was this somewhat overweighted influence of judaism and the jewish believers and teachers and this was actually serving to slow the growth of christianity among the non-jews so what did god do about it well this is something that we know from history this event occurred after most of the New Testament writings were complete, though this event uh, was prophesied by Jesus himself in Matthew 24. This event happened a few years after Paul was martyr, so Paul wasn't even alive to see it. In 70 AD, the Roman armies utterly destroyed Jerusalem. There was a political uprising in Jerusalem against the Romans, and the Roman army came down and destroyed the city. And this event is extremely significant in Christian history because it accomplished two purposes of God, the way I see it. First, it signaled that the old covenant was completely dead and gone. The temple was destroyed. There was no place for the priests to offer sacrifices. The old covenant was finished. Second, the powerful Christian church in Jerusalem was destroyed also. And those Christians were scattered throughout the world. What this did was to eliminate the strong influence of the Jewish Christians over the development of the Christian religion. There was no longer any pressure to make Christianity, effectively, a sect of Judaism. That ended when the Christian church in Jerusalem was destroyed. After this, it was the Gentile churches that had the most influence over the development of the Christian religion. The church in Antioch, in modern-day Turkey, near the Syrian border, The church at Alexandria in Egypt, and then a bit later, the church in Rome. Those were the most powerful churches in the world after the church in Jerusalem was destroyed. As we consider all of this, it's so interesting to see how God's purposes concerning the Christian church played out in history, just as Paul prophesied. And even just as Isaiah had prophesied so many centuries before that. Moving on. In the next section, beginning with uh, the first verse of chapter 10, Paul again affirms his care and concern for his own people, the Jews. Here's what he says. Uh, chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Let's read it. Quote, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge." Unquote. This is the second time in this section we're covering, chapters 9-11 through 11 of Romans, that Paul expresses his care and concern for his people, the Jews. And I think the reason that he does this is that what he is teaching in this section is pretty much, I guess you can call it bad news for them. Paul wants to make clear that he's not teaching this stuff because he has some sort of grudge against them. And so he says here, My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. No, he's teaching this stuff, well, because it's the truth. He's really, you know, as he suggests people do, speaking the truth in love, something that Paul encourages us all to do as Christians in Ephesians 4.15. We need to make sure that we not let our personal feelings, whether they be care and concern, or animosity, we need to make sure that that doesn't stop us from speaking the truth with respect to the things of God. We need to stand by the truth of the gospel, no matter how that may affect our relationship with others. So Paul does this here. Paul, at the time, wasn't really on the good side of the Jews, and this teaching wouldn't help that situation. But he speaks the truth anyway. In verse 2 of chapter 10 Paul mentions the zeal that the Jews had for God but then he says that their zeal was not based on knowledge or not in accordance with the truth as some translations put it this is an important point in general it's good to have a zeal for God and the things of God and a zeal for Christ and the teachings of Christ but we need to make sure that our zeal doesn't go you know doesn't get out of hand and cause us to wander away from the truth of who God wants us to be. Zeal at times can tip over into hatred and into a judgmental attitude. We need our zeal to be accompanied with a strong dose of humility. We need to temper our zeal with a strong desire to be Christ-like towards others you know, reflecting the love of Christ, reflecting the grace of Christ, reflecting the attitude of humility that Jesus demonstrated as he walked the earth. In this way, we need to make sure that our zeal, as Paul says, is based on truth, based on the truth of who Christ wants us to be, the truth of how Christ wants us to represent him as his ambassadors here on earth. As for the Jews, for the most part, unfortunately, Their zeal was not based on knowledge, as as Paul says. And Paul points out how, as he continues on in chapter 10. Let's read verses 2 through 4 again. Quote, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Unquote. So we see the zeal of the Jews was not grounded in humility because rather than humbly seeking God's way of righteousness as prescribed in the new covenant as ushered in by their own messiah, the Jews wanted to by and large stick with their old ways and their understandings of how righteousness should be attained. Or as Paul says in verse 3, quote, they sought to establish their own righteousness and so they did not submit to God's righteousness, unquote. This actually is one of the ironies about having the law. Having the law made it tougher for the Jews to seek the grace of God through Christ. The Jews thought, well, I have the law. I know right and wrong. I don't need Christ. I'll seek righteousness through the law. So they had this, you know, kind of a misplaced zeal there. They were zealous about the law, but not zealous about following God's ways and God's will. One of the most dangerous things in the world is to have a misplaced zeal. Zeal, as Paul says, not based on truth. It can be a dangerous thing. I mean, isn't that what radical Islam is all about? A radic- you know, Radical Muslims who seek to terrorize have a zeal for God, but it's a misplaced zeal. It's a zeal not based on the truth of who God is. So we can see how dangerous misplaced zeal can be. Back here in Romans chapter 10, there's a very key verse in verse 4, which puts the whole passage into perspective and really puts the history of the Jewish and Christian religions into perspective. It's an amazingly succinct verse which teaches us uh, so much about how the Old Testament teachings line up with the New Testament teachings and what role, if any, writings in the Mosaic Law play in the new Christian era. These seven words have huge implications. Here they are, quote, Christ is the end of the law, unquote. And we can really learn a lot by meditating and studying about the implications of those seven fairly simple words. Christ is the end of the law. What does that mean exactly? Well, let's look at it. That phrase, Christ is the end of the law, really turns on the meaning of the word end that Paul uses there. And it turns out that that word, which is telos in Greek, That word is a bit complex and multifaceted in its meaning, similar, actually, to the word end in English. There are various connotations of the word end in English, just as there are various connotations of the word telos in Greek. Because of this, it's actually not easy to figure out exactly what Paul was saying there. In fact, the scholars in the literature on Romans wrangle back and forth about what this phrase means, scrapping with each other, wrestling with each other. It's at that point where, uh, you know, if they were in the room, I would step in and say, hey, hey, wait, wait, wait a second. Hold on here. Couldn't it be that Paul, and also the Holy Spirit, purposely composed this verse so as to be multifaceted in order that we might meditate on the various different ways in which Christ is the end of the law? Rather than limiting the phrase to use exactly one of the meanings that it could possibly have, Couldn't we say that the Holy Spirit meant to communicate that Christ is the end of the law in various different ways? At least, that's the way I see it. I'd rather look at the various ways in which Christ is the end of the law than to try to shoehorn this verse into just one meaning. So let's do that. According to the American biblical scholar and expert in Greek, William Plummer, there are six different meanings of the Greek word telos. Of these six different meanings, there's one that we can throw out right away. One of the meanings of the word telos is that it was a tax on property or some such a thing. I think we can throw that out. I don't think that anyone, not even the zillions of scholars who have written on the book of Romans with all of their opinions, none of them were arguing that Christ was some sort of tax on property, so we'll throw that one away. Okay, so we're left with five different meanings for the word telos. And it turns out one could actually argue that each of these five meanings of telos, or the word translated end there in verse four, each of these meanings could apply to Christ with respect to the law. That's what's kind of fascinating about this verse. Let's look at them. Number one, one possible meaning of the word telos is that, telos is end, is that it's a summing up of or a giving the substance of. That could certainly apply to Christ. Christ is the sum and substance of the law. Christ summing up all of the laws, ordinances, promises, prophecies, types, and rites. Christ could certainly be called the end of the law under that meaning of the word end. Number two, telos could also mean the uttermost limit. And so under that meaning, one could say that if the law were taken to its uttermost limit, in its demands for righteousness, there would be Christ in his perfect, sinless state. Christ's perfect obedience is the law taken to its uttermost limit. Christ as the end of the law in that sense. That fits too. Number three, the next valid definition of telos is termination. Perhaps the most common definition of our word end. His termination also. And this also fits. Christ is the termination of the law in the sense that righteousness can no longer be achieved by observing the rituals of sacrifice as prescribed in the law. Even if a Jew today attempted to atone for his sin by observing to the letter the sacrifices prescribed in the Mosaic law, his sin would not be atoned for because Christ is the termination of that law. The old covenant is no longer valid. The Messiah has come and ushered in a new covenant. Jeremiah speaks about this new covenant, which supersedes the old covenant. He does this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Let's read those verses. Quote, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more." Christ is the way by which our sins are forgiven under the new covenant. The atoning sacrifices are no longer valid. As we talked about earlier, this was signaled dramatically in 70 AD when God allowed the Romans to destroy Jerusalem, including the temple. Just as Jesus prophesied, not one stone was left on the other. So also in this way, Christ is the end of the law. Number four. Here's the fourth meaning of the word telos that applies to Christ. Telos can mean completion through fulfillment. So we could translate Paul's verse here as saying Christ is the fulfillment of the law. In fact, Christ himself acknowledged that he fits this meaning of the word. Here's what he said in Matthew 5:17: 17. Quote, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Unquote. The law and the prophets point to Christ who fulfills the righteousness of a law by living a sinless life. And he fulfills the atonement prescribed by the rituals of the law, by offering himself as the sacrifice of atonement. And there's a bit of irony here. Though Christ is the end of the law, in all of the senses that we've been describing, he did not, as he himself says, abolish the law. Nothing of the law went away. The moral instructions as given in the law are still valid, just as Jesus said a few verses down in the book of Matthew from the one we just cited. Let's read Matthew 5, verse 19. Quote, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." God still wants us to follow the moral instructions given in the law. But as we have been saying, the rituals and sacrifices prescribed in the law have been fulfilled through Christ. So that way, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Number five, the fifth and final meaning of the word us" that applies here is end. End in the sense of being the place where everything leads. So with this definition, Christ is the end of the law in the sense that the law drives one to Christ. Through the law, we recognize what sinners we are and so we're driven to Christ as the end of the law. This is what chapter seven is all about in Romans. First, Paul spoke of how he, the law taught him what sin was. And then through the law, Paul realized that despite his efforts to keep the law, he couldn't do it. And finally, Paul was brought to the point of despair where, where he cried out. Here's what he said in Romans chapter seven, verse 24, quote, "'What a wretched man I am. "'Who will rescue me from this body of death?' Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord, unquote. So in this sense also, Christ is the end of the law. The law leads us to Christ. Paul expresses the same sentiment in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Here's what he said, quote, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, unquote the law as our tutor or teacher, bringing us to Christ as the only way that we can be justified. Christ is the end of the law in that sense. The way I see it, this is quite amazing. This word that Paul uses, telos, translated end in chapter four, uh, sorry, verse four, has these six different meanings, one of which is about taxes a little bit more that. Um, but for the five relevant meanings, Jesus fits each and every one of them. And more than that, just by meditating on each of these meanings, we learn more about Christ's relationship to the law and how he has summed it up, how he's the absolute limit of obedience to the law, how he's the termination of the righteousness that could be had from the law, how he's the fulfillment of the law, and finally, how Christ is the place where everything related to the law leads. It's quite amazing and the depth of this book. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond 5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.